Well, this morning we're in Psalm 100, which is on page 469 of the church Bible, if you have one of those. The Bible tells us that humanity's slide into sin begins with a failure to give God thanks. By nature, we attempt to put ourselves in the place of God. We want to honor ourselves instead of our creator. And unless we repent, he'll give us all the things that will never satisfy us and we'll be stuck in a mess of our own making. So with the Thanksgiving holiday coming up, I want to simply remind you of two fundamental reasons to thank Jesus. And I'm reminding myself as much as I'm reminding you because it is so easy to take these things for granted. You can see in your outline, we're going to see that we give thanks to Jesus because he is God and he is good. Now, because of all the evil and suffering in the world, some people will say that Jesus can be only one or the other. Either he is good, wishing to prevent suffering, but he's not God enough to stop it. Or he is God, able to prevent suffering, but not good enough to want to. And we make this into a huge dilemma, a problem of evil. But Psalm 100 puts these two things right together for us to spur all the world to rejoice and to give thanks. So I'd like to remind you this morning that Jesus, the good God of Israel, provokes our joy and thanks. Let me pray again for our time in God's word, and then we'll read Psalm 100. Father in heaven, please give us ears to hear and eyes to see your word that we might rejoice and enter your gates with thanksgiving, your courts with praise. Help us to see that Jesus is God and he is good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 100. This is a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Now this poem divides into two even sections. There's a group of imperatives or commands with a motivating reason for them. And then there's a second group of imperatives with a motivating reason for them. And those two motivating reasons in verses three and five, they are the two subpoints on your outline. These are the two reasons we have to thank Jesus. Verse three, know that he is God. And verse five, 
for he is good. So I'll walk through these in order. First, we are to rejoice because he is God, verses 1 to 3. The imperatives of verses 1 and 2 start on the outside of the nation of Israel, way out in the ends of the earth. Verse 1, he says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. You see, the poet of Israel here is speaking to all the nations of the earth and inviting them to join in the worship of the Lord, the only God. The poet wants the nations to make a joyful noise. You see, this poet is the originator of the Beaver Stadium whiteout. He wants a raucous, thrilling applause and cheering from all the people coming in from out of town. But not just any old noise will do. This is not a fight song for the Nittany Lions. This is not a war alarm or an emergency signal. This joyful noise of verse 1 is clarified further in verse 2 as serving the Lord with gladness and coming into his presence with singing. See, this noise he's talking about is the sort of noise that accompanies a worship service. So this poet has his eyes out the window. He's looking at the horizon to all the earth, almost as though he's got a bullhorn. And he calls out to the nations of the world, inviting them to come to Jerusalem and join in the worship of God at the temple. Hey, everybody, we really want you to be happy. So come on over here to Jerusalem. Worship our God with us. We've got a temple and sheep. We've got all kinds of stuff. Now, what, what on earth would motivate people to come and join them in Jerusalem? He, he does talk about sheep in verse 3. He doesn't say we have sheep. He says we are the sheep of his pasture. He, he wants all the earth to know that there is a God who is the one true God. All the nations at, of the earth at this time worshipped their own gods. They had their own legends and sacred writings to describe how their gods came to power. And there were battles between one nation and another that often they viewed as a test of which nation's God was superior to the other. But here in Israel, we have this tiny little people group who came to be known for making a unique claim. They never claimed, at least at their best, that their God was just a God for Israel. They claimed that their God was God of all the earth. As the prophet Jonah stated to the pagan sailors on his ship to Tarshish, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. You see, the Hebrew scriptures claim that their God made not only one group of people in one part of the world, they claim that he made all things, that he cares about 
all things. They claim that he seeks the welfare of all people and that he will not tolerate any rivals to his divine supremacy. The Lord of Israel wanted Egypt to know that he alone is God. So when Egypt enslaves the people of Israel, God attacks Egypt with plagues, a series of plagues that specifically target the gods of Egypt, such as the river god of the Nile and the sun god, Ra. And the Lord kills the firstborn of Egypt and drowns Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea to show that Pharaoh is no god like the Lord is. And God wants Babylon to know that he alone is God. When Israel falls later in their history to King Nebuchadnezzar and they are conquered and deported to Babylon, the prophet Ezekiel sees a vision of a heavenly chariot carried by angelic beings. And seated on that chariot's throne is not Marduk, or Bel from the Babylonian pantheon. No, it is the Lord God of Israel. Even when his people are defeated by their enemies, it only goes to show his strength and power over all the earth. When the Israelites are exiled in Babylon, the Babylonians mock them and their God because they believe him to have been conquered by their gods. You can read about this in Psalm 137. The Babylonians jeer at the Jewish worshipers of their Lord God, and they say, your God is pretty great, eh? That's why you ended up here in our power. Why don't you go ahead and sing us one of the songs of Zion, one of the songs of your temple, and tell us how great your God is? And the Jews are devastated from having lost their land. But some of them will not abandon their trust in the one God of all the earth. And so they ask their mocking captors, you want a song? You really want one of our songs? Okay, but you asked for it. And in Psalm 137, they proceed to sing a song that quotes a prophecy from Isaiah 13 about how their God will smash the evil Babylonians and even their children against the rocks to make them pay for their sins. And so the Jews, being mocked, sing out a blessing on anyone who comes along to fulfill that prophecy in the name of their God. The point of all the scripture is this. The godness of God does not depend on what part of the world you are from. It does not depend on what's happening in your part of the world. The godness of God does not depend on how you were raised or what you were taught about religion. It does not depend on how you are feeling today. It does not even depend on whether your life is going as you expected it to. You could be in the highest of highs or the lowest of lows, and the Lord, the God of Israel, is still 
the one true God over all the earth. As verse 3 puts it of Psalm 100, it is he who made us and we are his. Know that the Lord, he is God. But not all of humanity belongs to him yet. You do not want this God as your enemy. If you will only bow to him, pledge your allegiance to him, you too can be one more sheep in his pasture. He will be your good shepherd, and this will provoke your deepest joy and gladness because it will be like finding the embrace of your long-lost father after a lifetime of living as an orphan. Now, I've been talking about the God of Israel here for a while because this poem was written by and for the people of Israel. But I said early in this sermon that, that we were going to give thanks because Jesus is God. Now, how can I say that? And it's because the New Testament makes it very clear that Jesus is this same God of Israel. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus does something that only God can do. He forgives sin. And John 1 verse 2 tells us that all things were made through Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. So when this talks about God who made us, the New Testament says, that was Jesus. In John 10, some religious leaders try to lynch Jesus because though he is a man, he claims to be God. In Mark 10 and Matthew 20, Jesus has the divine foreknowledge to predict his coming arrest, his sham trial, his shameful death, and his unstoppable resurrection. Again, in John chapter 10, Jesus claims to have divine authority to die when he chooses to die and to rise from the dead when he chooses to rise from the dead. In Luke 22, Jesus tells his accusers that his actions, pardon me, that their actions will lead to his greatest triumph. He says, go ahead and kill me. I will be enthroned as the divine power in the universe. And his trial ends right there when the priests say, what further testimony do we need of this man's scandalous blasphemy? And in John 20, after Jesus rises from the dead, his follower, Thomas, sees the wounds in his hands and his side, and Thomas proclaims Jesus to be my Lord and my God. In Revelation chapter 5, we see Jesus worshipped right alongside God the Father. Revelation 5.13, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying... To him who sits on the throne, that's God the Father, and to the Lamb, that's Jesus, God the Son, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So the New Testament is very clear about this. Friends, the first reason to give thanks this Thanksgiving season is because Jesus is God. There is a good shepherd who cares for his sheep. 
He will not allow any of them to be lost from his grasp. He made us, and now we are his. He owns us and gets to do with us as he wishes. And his wish is to share his blessing and honor and glory and might with his people forever. You see, he is our inheritance, our treasure, and we are his. So rejoice, serve him with gladness, and sing. How does this apply? This week, friends, please, first, don't take Jesus for granted. Don't take Jesus for granted. Give thanks to him as your God. If he is not your God, you will have to find another God, which really means you will have to fill that role for yourself. And that will not end well. Your resume isn't strong enough to get hired to that position, and your job experience will not get you very far. So don't take the Lord Jesus for granted. Give him your thanks this season. And a second application, please don't risk your joy this week. Don't risk your joy this week. Give thanks to Jesus for creating you. If you don't recognize Jesus as your creator, you will lose your connection to reality, which comes at terrible cost. You see, the joy of verses 1 and 2 really depends on the recognition in verse 3 that he is God who made us. When we, when we fail to recognize Jesus as our creator, we lose our connection to reality. To give one example in our culture today, Jesus made you male or female. Give up on that truth and it will take you down a dark path toward an unreachable self-fulfillment. And the evidence is clear that those on this path are some of the most depressed and unhappy people the world has seen for generations. Your joy is at stake. For another example, Jesus, your creator, placed you into the family you are in. And he placed you into this city or into this program of study that you are in. He marked out all these details before you were even born. So you are not currently living in his plan B or plan C or plan D for your life. You are exactly where he wants you. Fail to recognize this and your joy is at stake. Here's another example. Jesus gave you strengths and weaknesses when he created you so that you could best reflect his glory. So being thankful for his creation of you enables you to be comfortable in your own skin. You don't have to keep trying to outdo others or to prove yourself or trying to be something you weren't made to be. So sing to the Lord Jesus and know that he is God. Your joy is at stake. Jesus is the God of Israel He is the God of all the earth, and when this fact is believed and proclaimed, it ought to provoke great joy. 
But it's not enough to know that Jesus is God. That's only half of the equation in this poem. The second reason to thank him is because he is good. We see this in verses 4 and 5. This second half of the poem is no longer facing outside toward all the earth. The party has now moved into Jerusalem, into the temple, where the nations that have streamed in are now permitted in verse 4 to bring their thanksgiving inside the temple gates. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. And they can bring their praise inside the temple courts. In this verse, they are directly commanded to give thanks to him and to bless his name. So having arrived at the house of worship for the God of Israel, how will you know it was all worth it and that you haven't come here in vain? How do you know that you're not simply connecting with another regional God and his petty concerns, just like the gods of all the other nations have their petty concerns? Verse 5 gives the second reason for thanksgiving, which is also the reason why this God is not like any other God. The Lord is good. His steadfast Love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. You see, this God is not a God who will say one thing today and another thing tomorrow. He is steadfast and faithful. He does not throw around the weight of his godness in order to simply do what he wants, when he wants, with no regard for anyone but himself. He is not like the Greek gods characterized by their debauchery and and their, their, their flitting whims where you never know whether you'll do something to tick them off. He is not like the Egyptian gods who have no mercy for spiritual deviance. He is not like the Mesopotamian gods who honor only power and privilege with no regard for the lower classes. And he is not like the Canaanite gods who take and take and take from you and then blame you when things still go wrong for you. You see, the Lord, the God of Israel, is not only God, but he is also good. And how did they know this, the people of Israel? Well, Unlike all the other law codes in the ancient Near East meant to serve the other gods, the laws of this God for his people protect the rights of the poor. And they prohibit partiality toward the powerful. They establish social relief for the weak in society, such as widows and orphans. And his laws appoint mechanisms for slavery to end and for women to be honored and cherished. You see, other gods of other nations at this time often required child sacrifice. And they pressured people into sexually deviant behaviors as acts of worship. But this God treats both Jewish children and Jewish marriages as sacred space among his people. The Lord's people are prohibited from mistreating immigrants. 
They're prohibited from conducting oppressive business practices, and they're prohibited from overreacting to crimes with cruel and unusual punishments. You see, in this God's kingdom, there is no acquiescence to state oppression, to personal vengeance, or vigilante justice. In the Lord's kingdom, nobody goes without food or friendship. Sometimes people will say that the Old Testament law was barbaric. But that's usually when they have not understood how different it was from the laws of the nations all around them at the time. And even how different it is from the laws of many nations since then. Why do people say it was barbaric? I've already mentioned a few reasons, but I'll give you some others. It's true that the Jewish law permits the death penalty for certain offenses. It's true that the Jewish law has a clearly religious moral code. But how... How are these things more barbaric than murdering 63 million unborn babies since 1973, as we have done in our nation? How could God's law to Israel be more barbaric than laws that are popping up in numerous states of the Union today, encouraging elementary school children to cut their parents out of irreversible decisions to block their puberty or mutilate their reproductive organs. You say, this is barbaric? We need to open our eyes. The point here is that the Lord, the God of Israel, is good. He is good. Verse 5. His law is good. His kingdom is good. But look at what this poem even focuses on even more. It focuses on God's character. His steadfast love that endures forever. His faithfulness that goes to all generations. Those two traits, his steadfast love and his faithfulness, are pretty important traits of God in the Old Testament. This combination of steadfast love and faithfulness is, in fact, the essence of God's character. When God's main man, Moses, who delivered the law to the people of Israel, when Moses wanted to see and know God, the Lord revealed himself in a cloud of fire on a mountain, and God proclaimed his name to Moses in Exodus 34, verse 6. He proclaims his name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in, here it is, steadfast love and faithfulness. You see, the chief reason why God is good is because it's simply his nature to be good. His steadfast love does not refer to romantic feelings or to fuzzy sentimentality. It refers to God's commitment to stick with his people, to keep his promises to them at any cost. His faithfulness doesn't make him like a cute little puppy, but makes him like the best and most powerful friend you ever could have. He is faithful 
Like the friend is faithful who steps between you and the bully and takes a beating for it. He is faithful like the sister is faithful who weeps with you when everyone else seems to ignore you. He is faithful like the sunrise is faithful. We don't question whether it's going to happen tomorrow or the day after that or the day after that. In particular, God's steadfast love and faithfulness is characteristic of his promises to rescue his people and make them his own. You see, God is good not only as a king, but also as a savior. As Isaiah says in chapter 25, verse 9 of his prophecy, it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. But is this goodness of God limited to Old Testament Israel? Or does this teach us something about Jesus as well? Well, Titus 3 says that when the goodness... And loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. You see, whenever the New Testament describes Jesus as Savior, that is another way in which it's making an implicit claim to Jesus' deity. Because in the Old Testament, God alone is Savior of his people. But in the New Testament, that God is now revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the very same God that Psalm 100 talks about. Jesus is the expression of the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior. He is the steadfast love and the faithfulness of this God. Jesus is the one who is worth getting excited about, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Friends, how does this apply? This Thanksgiving season, please rejoice in your Savior, Jesus. Rejoice in His goodness. Whatever your pain and sorrow, whatever loss you have experienced this year, please know that the steadfast love and the faithfulness of your God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will never end. And if you don't yet trust Jesus as your God and Savior, please know that there is a God who is both God and good. And he invites you to come into his presence with joy. Ordinarily, it is a terrifying thing to come before a powerful king. And it is terrifying if you fall into the hands of this God while you are still being held responsible for your sin. But if you will but pledge your allegiance to Jesus, his death pays for your sin. And your arrival into the presence of the king of the universe is a moment of utter joy 
and delight, not one of fear. So please join him today. And may this Thanksgiving season give you something of eternal significance for which to be thankful. Because the goodness and the godness of Jesus Christ is something worth singing and making a joyful noise about. Jesus, the good God of Israel, provokes joy, great joy and thanks. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks and we come before you with singing and with praise and thanksgiving because you are God and you are good. We praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God eternally. And we ask that you would help us this week to see your hand in our lives, that we might celebrate you who are God and who are good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, I ask all of you to stand with us now as we thank Jesus that he is good, that he is God, and that he is faithful to save us.